Welcome to the June 2020 issue of Beef Monthly. In headline news, we're going to talk about the CFAT program and livestock risk insurance, cattle markets, and local meat processors. In the consumer-focused Ask Dr. Ron segment, we're going to talk about the expectations for freezer beef and how much product can you take home. In the production and management tips section, we're going to talk about flies and heat stress and pasture management. In the upcoming programs and events, we're going to talk about a pasture herbicide virtual field day. And now, a word from our good friends at Corteva. Your land is more than a business. It's a heritage that has been passed down from those who tended it before you, by those who shaped it, changed it, and cared for it. Your land has a legacy, one that you carry on, but also one you build on. At Corteva AgriScience, we are the stewards of a lasting legacy. We have a responsibility to Dow AgroSciences to maintain the relationships and trust they built and to build upon those foundations. To help you care for your land, to provide innovations that help you protect the hard work and investment you've poured into it. To help you build a legacy that can be passed on for generations to come. Corteva AgriScience. Let's begin this edition of Headline News talking about the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP. The eligible commodities that would be of most interest to our beef producers would be non-specialty crops like corn, soybeans, and wheat, and the livestock category of cattle, sheep, and hogs. There's also a wool, a dairy, and a specialty crops category. CFAP program is accepting applications from May 26th to August 28th. You can apply very easily in your county extension FSA office. And for the livestock category, there's three easy forms to fill out. Payments will start in early June, and the categories of payments go into either cattle sold between January 15th and April 15th, or cattle on inventory between April 16th and May 14th. The payment rates is shown in this table. So let me just briefly describe this table. Feeder cattle less than 600 pounds basically are calves that would be still nursing moms. So those could be last fall's calves that are still nursing cows, okay, or it could be newborn calves, all right, during the specified time frames. If the feeder cattle less than 600 pounds were sold um, during that January to April time frame, you would be eligible for $102 a head. If the cattle were on inventory between that April and May time frame, they would be worth $33 a head. Feeder cattle more than 600 pounds would be our backgrounding and stocker cattle. Slaughter cattle are broken into two categories. Fed cattle greater than 1,200 pounds, so this would be our feedlot finishing cattle. All right. If those were sold in that January to April time frame, you'd be eligible to, for $214 a head. And if they were on inventory between mid-April and mid-May, they would be worth $33 a head. The second slaughter category would be mature cattle. So these would be our cull cows, our cull bulls. If they were sold, 
it would be worth $92 a head during that in that time frame of January to April. And if they were on inventory from April to May, they'd be worth $33 a head. The all other cattle category really is where your breeding cattle go. Okay, so that's where your cows, your bulls, your replacement heifers really reside. All right, if they happen to be sold during that January to April time frame, they'd be worth $102 a head. If they were on inventory between mid-April and mid-May, they're worth $33 a head. So it's worth looking at and, and pursuing. Now, I should point out that, that whenever they make the calculation, they'll, they'll use these numbers times the number of animals in a particular category, and then they'll multiply that to eight times 80%, and that's what your payment would be. The second category is the livestock insurance category. USDA's Risk Management Agency, or RMA, announced changes to the Livestock Risk Protection, Pro Protection Program, or LRP, for feeder cattle, fed cattle, and swine starting this summer with the, 21, the 2021 crop year. And you can insure your livestock for up to 100% of their expected value. More information can be obtained from the, the websites that I've listed here, but I also have got them listed in the show notes below this video. Another category is a pandemic authority suitable to utilize reserve easements or Pastures Act. This is a bipartisan proposed bill in Congress, and if it would be passed, it would allow USDA to open up CRP land for emergency grazing and haying. Okay, which would allow and ensure producers grazing flexibility during this pandemic, particularly if they're trying to hold cattle uh, like stockers and, and, and feeders uh, for an extended period of time so we can get through the backlog uh, in the processing plants. In the cattle markets category, uh, what we've done is we've added carcass weights year over year by 40 pounds to steers and 25 pounds heavier for heifers. And what this has done is it ensures that we're going to have an adequate beef supply for consumers, all right? But it takes fewer animals to meet some of the demand, all right? So what we're seeing is a lowering cash, cash prices, okay, on cattle. Uh, we hope that that will come back. Uh, consumer demand needs to remain high to incentivize the packers to continue large harvest capacity and get us through uh, and get us current with the backlog of roughly a million head of cattle, okay? The hog industry is running about two million head of hogs behind, all right? Because of sh slowdowns and shutdowns of packing plants. Last week, nationwide, and so this is across beef, pork, and, and poultry, uh, the packing plants were seeing uh, 30 to 50% absenteeism, okay? In spite of that, the beef plants are running at almost 95% capacity compared to last year, which is up from 52% capacity the second week of May. We're currently uh, harvesting about 660,000 head of cattle per week, and the way they're doing that, okay, is by adding a Saturday harvest kill date. So they're working six days a week instead of the typical five. The other thing that the packing plants are doing is they're trying to reduce those extra labor products. In other words, products that require a significant amount of knife time. So this could change what's available in the grocery store. So we may see more bone-in product and we may see more 
what we call wholesale cuts instead of retail cuts that would either have to be cut in the store or taken home and finished cutting. The Department of Justice has subpoenaed the big four packers and technically it's not really a subpoena, it's an investigative demand. And those were sent out earlier this month to the four major packers of Tyson, JBS, Cargill, and National Beef, which process about 80% of the, the beef that we use for U.S. consumption. And the, the issue is the potential for antitrust violations. And it stems from two different issues. Number one is the August fire in the Tyson-Feeney uh, County uh, facility and the COVID-19 pandemic. And where in both cases, producers were offered low cattle prices, but the wholesale beef prices were high. And so the disparity is really where the antitrust violations potentially may arise. And so this is being investigated. On a related matter, local meat processing plants uh, um, providing freezer beef and direct sales from producer to consumer are booming. Some producers have really capitalized on this opportunity, all right? Others cannot get a harvest slot. And, and I will tell you that the local processors, every one of them that I've talked to across the state, are running at capacity. And what does capacity mean, okay? It's a combination of how many animals can you actually run through the plant a day, okay, in terms of kill capacity, okay? But you also have to factor in worker safety. You have to consider cooler space, okay? And particularly, that becomes particularly an issue for those processors that are trying to dry age products for 10, 14 days, 21 days, okay? That limits what their, what their kill capacity is, okay? And then another limiting factor to uh, lo local processors running at capacity is the cutting floor specs. And most of our freezer beef customers have custom orders, all right? They want their steaks cut a certain way. They want certain cuts either put into roast or, or ground beef products or whatever. And, and virtually every carcass is processed with a different level of cutting specifications. That takes knife time, all right? So when you put all these, things, these factors together, the local processors are doing all they can do. And... They don't have any extra slots to put cattle into, even though you may have, even you maybe you've even been a good customer of theirs. Okay, they've got a limited number of slots. Okay, and they're running at capacity. An interesting twist, okay, is is kind of in this COVID-19 antibody production. There's a biotech company in South Dakota that's using dairy cows to produce human antibodies to fight the SARS-CoV-2 virus, all right, which is really the COVID-19 product, all right. Uh, the advantage of using cows is that number one, they've got a lot of blood volume, and number two, their blood contains twice as many antibodies as humans on a per mil of blood basis, okay? So this is kind of an interesting twist and, and it'll be interesting to see if this works. But clinical trials are expected to begin this summer. In this month's production and management tips, we're going to talk just a little bit about fly control. Okay, we're in the fly season and obviously flies can, can, can transmit pink eye. 
And so fly control is important from, from both not only the animal comfort, but also from the pink eye control, uh, which can be a pretty significant problem uh, for the animals. Mowing pastures, okay, is a second category. Okay, that allows uh, these plants to stay in a vegetative growth stage instead of a reproductive growth stage, which is really a lower quality. We would, vegetative is higher quality. And it would also provide mechanical control of weeds. And uh, really the third category is, is that it gets rid of the seed heads, okay, that, uh, that can be a fly irritation, uh, an irritation to eyes that can actually uh, cause mechanical injury and, and uh, allow pink eye to, uh, to infect these cattle. Another area is rotational grazing, all right? Allowing plants a period of rest between grazing bouts, okay, is kind of an important thing in terms of pasture overall health, uh, plant vigor, plant regrowth time, etc. Another issue is uh, storing outside uh, large round bales, okay, and I tra as I travel the state I see a lot of bales stored a lot of different ways. The ideal way to store large round bales to minimize waste is in a north to south row orientation. Bales tight butt to butt, in other words flat side to flat side, tight together, and uh, on well drained site. It's getting dry in some areas of the state, okay, and we need some rain. I don't know if that's going to mean that we're, we're, we're going to be in a drought scenario, okay, but if we look to our west, the High Plains is now starting to, particularly the Southern High Plains is starting to see some uh, indications of drought. Uh, whether that spreads to our area or not, I don't know, all right, but, but it might be time to start thinking about how do we conserve some of our resources. Rotational grazing is obviously one way to extend our forage supply, allow us to increase uh, carrying capacity, uh, even in a drought situation. Don't overgraze your pastures, okay? That will haunt you towards the end of the grazing season and on into next grazing season and maybe even beyond that, all right? Uh, co prices are seasonally higher right now, so if you've got co cows, okay, you've got open cows that you need to get rid of or are planning to get rid of, I would also encourage you to do an early preg check as soon as you can after the, after the, after the end of the breeding season and get rid of the replacement heifers that uh, fail to conceive. Um, that's a way to reduce the number of animals, uh, you know, consuming forage. And if we get into a drought stress scenario, uh, you know, you'll be happy that those animals are gone. Uh, you can also consider older and low performing cows, maybe even early weaning calves, those calves from those cows, um, to extend your uh, forage resources even more, particularly if we start getting into a drought scenario. Now, the good news is that supplement, supplemental feeds are relatively inexpensive. When you look at the value of corn, soybean hulls, corn gluten, etc. Um, so we're not in a dire straits, and I'm not saying that the sky is falling, but, but it might not be a bad idea to start thinking about what happens if, if uh, the summer is dry and we start running short on pastures and some of those things. What are some of my alternatives? Another issue for this summer is heat stress, okay? Obviously cattle uh, will stand around panning. They'll, they'll typically cut cluster in shaded areas uh, close together. Uh, 
And I think what's important that you realize that uh, cattle can only sweat about 10% as efficiently as, as us humans do, all right? And they require nighttime cooling. And if temperatures stay above 70 degrees at night, they don't have the opportunity to cool down, okay? In other words, reduce their body temperature, all right? When the daytime high temperature hits, uh, let's say uh, I was watching the news and it suggested that the daytime temperature for tomorrow was going to be 90 degrees at 5 o'clock. All right. Well, 90 degrees at 5 o'clock means that it's going to take six hours for those cattle to start to dissipate all of their excess heat, come back to a normal body temperature. That means that's about 11 o'clock at night. All right. If the temperature stays above 70 degrees, all right, they're not going to be able to dissipate all that heat. And so they can't get out and recover from heat stress. Now, some of the factors that, that add to the heat stress scenario is how much body fat these cattle have got. So um, heavy body condition score cows or, and particularly, um, feedlot cattle that are approaching being market ready. Okay, those, those fat cattle, if you will. All right. Another category of cattle that, that are subject to heat stress are black-hided cattle. Uh, black hides attract heat. Light color hides uh, reflects heat and sunlight. Okay, and then the amount of hair that the cattle have got. If they haven't completely shed their winter hair coat, okay, those cattle, the cattle that have significant amounts of hair are going to be uh, more prone to heat stress than, than the cattle that have already slicked off. Now, don't forget humidity, all right? So here in Indiana, in the eastern Corn Belt, humidity and uh, temperature kind of go together, all right? So it's the temperature-humidity combination that causes heat stress, and, and that's an important thing to remember. Uh, in the feedlot, we have fatigue cattle syndrome. Typically, these are black-hided cattle that are market-ready, uh, in a really hot day, a hot environment, all right? Those cattle will be slow to move, okay? They're, they become very lethargic, and sometimes those cattle will lay down and you just almost can't get them back up again, all right? So, again, something to think about. Now, how do we minimize the effect of heat stress? Providing shade, providing good airflow, in other words, keeping cattle away from windbreaks, for example, okay, so that they get some, some ventilation, making sure that cattle don't stack in the barn, okay, without good airflow, uh, cool, clean, abundant supply of water. These cattle are going to drink a lot of water. Between 70 and 90 degrees, they will double their water consumption, all right? Low-stress animal handling is another issue if you're going to be working cattle. Ideally, we would work cattle before 8 o'clock in the morning and we'd keep them in the handling facilities for no longer than 30 minutes because they're going to be confined, heat's going to transmit from animal to animal, and temperatures are going to rise along with humidity in that area. All right. For those of you that are sending cattle to a packer, okay, ideally we would like cattle to arrive by 7 o'clock in the morning to the packer. That means that you, need, you might need to be loading cattle in the middle of the night and make that time frame work. Uh, but that would be the lowest stress on the animals. Another area of minimizing heat stress, particularly in the feedlot, would be to reduce how much feed you put in the feed bunk in the morning and increase it in the amount uh, in the late afternoon. So one of the rules of thumb is feed 30% of the ration in the morning 
70% in the late afternoon. Ideally, that late afternoon would be two hours after peak daily uh, high temperature. Another thing that can help uh, a little bit by minimizing heat stress is the addition of ionophores in your rations. So Remensen, Bovitec uh, are examples of that. That helps regulate feed intake a little bit. Uh, helps in liver abscesses. Um, helps in a couple different ways. MGA is a second product, okay, and this would be uh, uh, for feedlot heifers, all right, to keep them from coming into estrus or heat and the writing behavior that's associated with heat activity or estrus behavior. And when you start increasing that level of activity, heat stress becomes more of an issue. For more information on heat stress, I've, I've listed on, on this slide uh, several references that you can go to. I've also listed those in the show notes below. In a consumer-focused Ask Dr. Ron segment, I got a phone call from a producer that said, I just sold a beef to my neighbor to put in their freezer, and they wanted to know how much of the various beef products they should expect to take home. I didn't have a good answer for their question. Could you help me out? All right, so let's begin this discussion using a 1,300-pound choice yield grade three animal. And we're going to use the assumption that we've got about a half an inch of back fat, average muscling, 13 to 14 square inches of ribeye. Um, we would expect that animal to, to have a live animal to carcass yield of about 63%. There is a little bit of variation around that. All right. So at 63%, we would expect about an 820-pound carcass. Again, 805 to 830 pounds could be a normal range. All right. Now, when we take the carcass and we put it into retail cuts, we could expect about another 63% yield. Now, the variation in the range is much bigger. It's 55 to 75%. All right. So we would expect a 1,300-pound choice yield grade 3 steer to give us about 515 pounds of retail product, but the range is 450 to 615 pounds. Now, another way to look at this is to say, okay, what's the live animal to retail conversion. It's about 40%. Again, there's a fair amount of variation. So we would expect in that same 515, 520 pound retail yield takeaway. All right. But again, the range is from about 440 pounds to about 610 pounds. Now, in a typical 820 pound carcass, we would expect just short of 30% of it to be in the chuck. Okay. So that would be about 7.5% of the carcass weight would be in, in chuck roasts and steaks, about 11% in lean trim, and about 9% loss, okay? And the losses are really the fat, excess fat, bone, etc. that would be trimmed away. In the round, the round would be just short of 22% of the carcass weight. Roasts and, and steaks from the round would be about 11.7% of the carcass weight, about 5.5% lean trim would come from that, and about 4.5% loss. In the loin, we'd expect just short of 17% of the carcass weight, about 9.6% of the carcass weight would be in roasts and steaks, about 1.3% would go into lean trim, and about 5.8% would go into loss. Ribs would be just short of 10% of the carcass weight, uh, about 
5% roasts and steaks, uh, the carcass weight, about 1.7 would go into lean trim, and about 3% would add to the loss category. And then in the miscellaneous category, we'd have about 24% of the carcass, okay? About 9.5% would be lean trim, and about 14.6% would be uh, losses. And those losses would include excess fat, not used in hamburger, bone, kidney, liver, tongue, oxtail, etc. All right. So the total take home of an 820 pound carcass would be about 275 pounds of roasts and steaks, about 240 pounds of lean trim, and about 305 pounds of loss, okay, of bone, etc. So the take home product is roughly 63% of the carcass weight and about 40% of the live weight. Now, there could be some variables, all right? Animal weight is an indicator of animal finish. Right, animal composition, uh, how much muscling it has. Dairy animals are going to provide less take-home product than beef animals because their lean-to-bone ratio is lower. Right, they got more bone-to-lean ratio. Back fat is an indicator of carcass fat content, and so if we get super fat cattle, okay, coming in with significantly more than half an inch of back fat, there's going to be a lot of excess fat trim. Okay, that's going to come off of that carcass and not being a take-home product. Dressing percent is an indicator of fat and gut fill. So if we're using live animal to take home product calculation, okay, if the animal was just drank five or ten gallons of water, had just had a full meal, all right, obviously that's going to come off with the GI tract and it's not going to be reflected in carcass weight. So that 40% live to retail conversion is going to be off. Marbling is an indicator of carcass quality, obviously. Animal age, okay, uh, really relates to animal tenderness, and we, we talk about a maturity cattle being less than 30 months of physiological age. Another variable is how you ask the, the processor to cut your product, okay, are you gonna do a bone-in or a boneless product? In other words, are you gonna have New York strips and fillets, or are you gonna have T-bones and porterhouses, all right? That bone weight is either going to go in the barrel or it's going to go home in your freezer, all right? So realize that that's a variable. Whether you add the tongue, liver, heart, um, oxtail to your take-home product or a lot of producer or a lot of consumers say, I don't want that product, and so it oftentimes goes into a soup kitchen or a food pantry. What do you do with the brisket, the flank steak, the roast, the short ribs? Are those going to be knife time, okay, to, to trim them up? Or are those going to go into hamburger? All right, and and what percent percent lean do you want in your hamburger? All of those things are going to are going to be a variable in how much product you take home, depending on your cutting instructions. So the bottom line is that the take home can be variable based on many factors, but we would expect roughly 63 percent. Uh, of the carcass weight would be in take-home product or roughly 40% of the live weight going home in take-home product. In upcoming programs and events, I've asked Dr. Keith Johnson, Extension Forage Specialist from the Department of Agronomy to join me to talk about a virtual pasture herbicide field day planned for late summer and early fall. Hi, I'm Dr. Ron Lemonager, Beef Extension Specialist at Purdue and in the Department of Animal Science. And with me, I've got Dr. Keith Johnson, the forage agronomist. Uh, and we're standing out here in, in a, actually it's a winter dry lot at Scholar Farm. And we, uh, we had the opportunity to work with one of our 
uh, friends, uh, the Corteva group, uh, on some herbicide treatments of, of weeds. And our plan is to do a virtual field day later this fall, uh, late summer, early fall. And uh, Keith, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing. Okay, we've got uh, a few treatments. We sure do, and this is a challenging area. As you say, it's an area that's a winter lot, so uh, it it uh, has extreme challenges with weeds. So this is an opportunity for us to look at the control of some of the weeds that we do have here. And you can see in the background that we're getting some very effective uh, control of Canada thistle is probably what you're seeing the most in this particular shot. But the products that we are using are Milestone Plus 2,4-D, a product called Brash, which is uh, a mixture of 2,4-D and dicamba, uh, Proclova, which is a new product potentially coming on the market, uh, Duracor, and also then a product called Grayzone. And then, of course, we have our control where we did not uh, spray any herbicide whatsoever. Keith, um, you know, we're, uh, we're doing a lot of picture taking and all those kinds of things. So let's talk a little bit about what producers, when we do our virtual field day, what they might be able to expect in terms of documentation of how this thing was working. Yeah, I think this is one of the strengths that we've been doing. We're spending quite a bit of time out here with different people. But uh, some of the things that we're doing, we're taking drone imagery uh, on a weekly basis. Um, you and I and Phil Reed come out and take pictures of four different species in each plot on about every three-day basis. So we're watching the decline of these weeds. So it'll be interesting to, to share that beginning to the end and watch the decline or the lack of decline of these certain species. We've been looking at Canada thistle and uh, curly dock in particular, the two common weeds in these plots, and also looking at the detrimental effects on two forage species, white clover and red clover. We also have trail cameras set up, so we're watching again, uh, slow but sure, in a, a way, the decline of these species through the course of time with trail cameras that are set up on particular plots. So those are the uh, things that we've been doing, and I think it'll be interesting to go through all that information and get the best for the virtual field day. Keith, thank you so much. And so just just kind of stay tuned. I, you know, late this summer, early this fall, uh, we're going to do a virtual field day of of kind of how the herbicides that you might consider uh, working in your winter dry lots, but also in even in your other pastures. We'd like to ask each of you viewing Beef Monthly to give us a thumbs up if you like the program. And feel free to share it with those that you think might be interested. We also invite you to subscribe to email notification and reminders when the monthly program is posted on the third Friday of each month by hitting the notification bell. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.